Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here are your hosts, Asha Davis, Strategy Director, and Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shite Day New York. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Dan Greenberg, the founder and CEO of ShareThrough. Now, you may know ShareThrough as the largest independent native advertising platform, and you may know Dan since he has appeared on ad ages 40 under 40, and before that, Forbes is 30 under 30. Dan, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Thank you. I guess that means 50 under 50 coming next, huh? <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I hope I can join you for that one. <laughs> I've got uh, two kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and so I'm not going to apply the extreme dad pressure to get them on the four under four or the two under two lists. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, listen, maybe seven under seven, that could be the lucky one. You never know. Never know. <laughs> so this whole native advertising thing, I was talking to Asha up front, basically what? You're the person who puts those ads in my feed? That you, do, you just Is your first disruption, are you disrupting our feeds? <laughs> good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, we've expanded far beyond native, but I'm happy to spend today talking about the world of native advertising and this movement that we created around it. What is native advertising? Native is a form of advertising, form of marketing that fits in naturally to the form and function of the sites, the user experience, the content around it. It doesn't mean it hides. It doesn't mean that it tricks anybody. You know, the best version of native advertising is where it fits in so naturally that you can scroll past it if you don't want to see it. But once you see it, you say, oh, yeah, that's actually interesting to me. You know, you're scrolling through a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or a LinkedIn feed or really any you know, Snapchat, TikTok, like any modern platform, all of their ad formats are native. Mm-hmm. And the concept there is that instead of it being a foreign object that as you're flying through the feed, some foreign object swoops in and takes over the screen and makes you find <laughs> the X button, the ad format fits in naturally, almost feels like a feature, not this foreign object. Right. It feels like it's a feature of the page, like it was born out of the page. And that if you ask the product manager whose job is to manage the user experience, they'd say, yeah, ads are a feature of our site. We don't shunt them into the corners and the bottoms and make them take over the screen and throw two middle fingers up at our users. We're saying, hey, users, we need to make money to survive and thrive, especially in the world of journalism. But we're going to do that in a way that's integrated to our experience and hopefully just as helpful, relevant, interesting, content-forward, purposeful as just the content around it. Obviously, that's aspirational. Most brands are not as helpful and content-driven and purposeful and you know, perfect, I think, as the content around it. And that's a very, like maybe a, a too wordy phrase. Native advertising is the best form factor for advertisers who care about the user. Right. If the advertiser cares about the user and wants to respect the user, Throwing an interstitial that the user has to go and find an X button on is obviously not the answer. And even a banner is not the answer. You know, if an advertiser, I know you want to talk about like an Airbnb, for example, if Airbnb wants to talk about uh, the 10 tree houses in Northern California that you can rent on Airbnb, taking that beautiful concept and content and smashing it into a sticky little French fry banner ad on the bottom of your phone that overlays the page just makes no sense. So if you have great content or if you have something that's helpful and purposeful and meaningful as a marketer, the concept of native as an ad format is to be able to take that great content and integrate it into the user experience, the feeds, the content flow of the pages. And in some ways, that's even where the name ShareThrough came from. Instead of an ad being targeted and 
ad served and you know, all these sort of like war lingo and language around like served to a page and targeted at the user, tracked and all the rest of that, the ad ideally should be shared through the natural user experience of the page. Great. Uh, all right, now hold on. The, the ad is shared through that experience. Okay. Hold on. That was that was a lot of good information. I'm throwing it over to you, Asha, because I know you had questions. Right. No, that that's great information. I think the best definition of native advertising is that it doesn't give you the middle finger when you get to <laughs> a page. Um, For sure. Yeah. Like it should it should blend in enough that you can move past it if you don't want to see it. Right. But once you do see it, you know it's an ad. It's right. not tricking you into thinking it's not an ad. You know it's an ad, but hopefully it's human and helpful. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about those warlike terms like targeting, which I I like. I've never thought of it in that capacity, but I guess it kind of is. Targeting, especially in, in the world of marketing, is a big deal and very important, you know? And, and as you talked about, one of the things that makes ads actually work is relevance, right? And how do you know if you're relevant? Well, your ability to target and know certain information about a person so that you can serve them or share with them ads that may be more relevant. And obviously you've heard the news that Google is making their way to a more private internet, I guess you can say. I mean, obviously Google owns the vast majority of this thing that we all rely on. And so I'm actually just curious in terms of A, what does that mean to you? And do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? And kind of where does that take the industry as a whole? Love it. Um, I'm going to answer with a heady thought first, and then we can dive into ad tech, tech talk. Got it. Uh, But the heady thought here is that there is an existential battle for the future of the internet. And in some ways, an existential battle for the future of journalism. Right. And if journalism is only financed and funded by people paying for the news and paying for content, for us, you know, I get it. Like I can pay for Medium. I can pay the monthly fee for Substack subscriptions and the rest. But for the rest of the world, the 80-20 rule will always apply. And maybe 20% of people will pay for the news. And if you really extend it out, it's probably more like 1% of people will pay mm. for the news, if not less than 1% of people in the, in the world will pay for the news. So out of whatever, 7 or 8 billion people in the world, I think it's a critical human, I'm going to say right, but maybe just a critical human part of the human experience to have free and accessible content that creates shared stories, creates shared narratives, that has human history and human news and just like shared culture through free and open journalism. Oh, we got share through in again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did I say share through? I didn't even mean. You said that share through. He doesn't uh, even know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's it's critical that we find a way to fund and finance the future of the open internet, fund right. and finance the future of open journalism, mm-hmm. and you know our small approach to that. You know, there's a lot of different angles here, but our approach to that is to find a more sustainable monetization model built on the back of a user experience that's human-centric and respectful and content-driven and is designed around what the ultimate human on the internet actually wants to see, not something that they're running away from and blocking and skipping and muting. Uh, If our ad formats trigger people to mute, block, skip all of them, and Adblock Plus now has however many hundred million users and everybody's got like some sort of virtual mute button in your hand, if not literally a mute button on your computer and on TV, you have a skip button, If our ad formats are designed such that people get more and more and more, skipping them, blocking them, muting them, you won't be able to finance and fund journalism and content creators. Right. So this whole conversation about the open internet and targeting and cookies and the rest of this, it's easy to go 
in the weeds really fast. You know, it's easy to dive straight into like talking about cookies versus APIs and IDFAs on Apple and you know that type of stuff. And we can, but I think it's important to sort of call back to the highest level concept that Google still does want the open internet to thrive. In fact, if Google kills the open internet with its new policy changes around cookies and targeting, Google will threaten its own trillion, you know, multiple trillion dollar business now. Google's business is on the open internet. You know, they have these other side projects, cars and whatever else mm-hmm. too. But Google's business is search and ads on publishers on the open internet. And so I just say that how this affects us and our business and our industry or marketers in our industry. We're existentially aligned with Google for the future of the open internet. But I would say we're actually in some ways more spiritually aligned with Facebook in terms of human-centric, more respectful, more integrated ad formats. I know people have a lot of issues with Facebook as a company these days related spreading fake news or spreading isolationism, things like that. So I'm not talking about that at all. That's a whole different topic. Not that part. Just in terms of, <laughs> but just in terms of the ad formats, Facebook's ad formats don't scream onto the page, you know, have a huge homepage takeover with an X. They don't have sound on if you don't want them. Facebook's ad formats are integrated. They're native, just like Twitter's, just like LinkedIn, just like any modern platform, and just like any self-respecting platform. Um, and I think but, that there's a lot then, of challenges on the open internet that, with ad formats that are not designed for humans. But I want to go back to existentialism because it's a good fancy word. (laughs) And what you're saying, because listen, I'm still a guy who, you know, will buy, you know, the New York Post and, uh, you know, the Financial Times. So I get credit for carrying around the pink paper, you know, on the actual paper. So when you say this kind of free open format, do you mean, okay, the information is going to be free and open, but it's going to be funded by some form of native advertising? Yeah, I mean, even the the post is funded by advertising. The post without an ad business would cost either a lot more or be limited to only people who could pay for it. There may be a future, and I, I love the future where journalism is somehow financed through, I mean, I'm not going to say this, I guess I was going to say through government, but I don't mean that. But I mean through you know, grants and business models where journalism can maybe be decoupled from monetization. That if you can have free and open journalism mm. yeah. that is decoupled from their need to make money, that would be incredible. But also that sounds like the beginnings of a sci-fi book. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, but this is so fascinating, Dan, because you know I think when we were coming into this conversation, thinking about a more private internet, you know, as Adweek put it, the death of cookies that mm-hmm. can't be solved by a little blue guy. You know? <laughs> I don't think that we were sort of thinking of the correlation between that and the fundamental right to journalism, the fundamental right to sort of the real story. Yeah. And I think that that's really interesting that you sort of talk about particularly native advertising as kind of a function that supports journalism that yeah. supports the ability to allow us to have sort of fair and, and free news. You know, we, we interviewed, you know, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the CMO of the Wall Street Journal uh, a few episodes ago. And, you know, we were talking about kind of that pivot towards sort of the digital model, but we were primarily talking about sort of a subscribership. And I think your yep. point of the general masses of the world in reality, not necessarily being able to afford subscriptions, but the ability of publications to provide free access to key sort of articles. I think I think it's something interesting there. It definitely makes pop-ups or, or, or advertising not sound <laughs> as bad as maybe some people might think, you know? 
Yeah, I just Googled here. There are 2.3 million digital subscribers to the Wall Street Journal. That's a big number. Yeah. 2.3 million people paying whatever it is, $200 a year, is a big number. It's a lot of revenue. 2.3 billion people out of 8 billion is, enough, is nothing. Right. And you could add up all the digital subscriptions, New York Times subscriptions, medium subscriptions, people who pay for Substacks, email newsletters, you know, add in 5, 10, mm. 100 more even. No, no one's ever done this that I've seen, but I bet there's less than 200 million people in the world who have digital media subscriptions, maybe 500 million at best, but 500 million, it seems like an extreme guess, uh, who pay for you know, digital content. And so to me, this is actually a point of optimism. The reason I'm saying all this is that I think that the death of the cookie has been overstated in its purported impact on the open internet. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm saying this is that Google's business is the open internet. Mm. And Google, when you ask Google and you read Google's messaging and you look at the Google privacy sandbox, they're building solutions for the open internet. They just don't rely on cookies anymore. Got it. So maybe it will be you know, groups of users. Uh, I know that's like a big concept with the privacy sandbox is a, a group of user who are all interested in pants not you know, Asha specifically looking at that black pair of pants hmm. or a group Got of it. users who are all interested in the New York Mets and you know the Mets are trying to sell tickets and it's not 10,000 users. It can be a group of 17 users or 50 users or whatever Google's rules are going to be. So you'll still be able to do intelligent and sophisticated targeting and measurement and fraud prevention and you know all the other sort of critical components that make advertising, digital advertising possible on the web. They'll just be done in a way that's the next chapter of privacy for users mm-hmm. where it's not going to be at the individualized level. It'll be at a slightly more aggregated level. Right. I, I think this is interesting. And, and because I, you know, helped found this podcast and believe in disruption. I want to just throw something out there and see what you think about this, Dan, which is like, I'm tired of my algorithm. I'm not surprised. The stuff mm-hmm. I'm interested in, the algorithm keeps giving me the stuff that I'm interested in. Right. And I'm bored with it. And I think one of the powers of linear television and old school advertising was sometimes you would just be surprised. And I'm just wondering, you know, again, you've got a good brain for this. What's algorithm 2.0? Because I feel like this Mm. current algorithm, even as you frame it up as maybe more cluster algorithm versus personal algorithm. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I think maybe I'm alone, but I'm bored with my algorithm. Yeah. Are you talking content or ads? When you say algorithm, you mean like you log into Facebook or Twitter and like you're like, I get it. It's the same people making stories, the same people posting on Instagram. You know, you mean or you mean the ads? No, no, very, very good question. I think that the the content is usually, you know, that's what I'm in. Okay, I'm focused, I'm interested, I want to read about X, Y, or Z, whatever. I'm going to read about the Rangers today and the Mets. But the advertising that served Mm -hmm. to me, I'm totally bored with. Like, don't keep. (laughs) You know, just because I mentioned it and you're, you know, you're listening to me on my phone doesn't mean I'm actually interested. Right. Yeah. I think that this will help a bit. The internet and especially internet advertising is subject to just free market economics and auction dynamics, meaning that the reason you see it is because it works. The reason you see the black pants on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and the open internet is because that black pants advertiser is willing to spend the most money out of anybody in the world to run an ad that you see because it works. I'm if this, sure, but it's boring. I want to be yeah, surprised. <laughs> but so with, the, with this optimism, if Google's thing, the privacy sandbox and this approach to sort of more aggregated targeting 
diminishes the ROI positive metrics for that specific, you know, black pant retargeted advertiser, maybe that does decrease their willingness to bid. Um, and maybe it, it opens up the chance for Procter & Gamble and Nike and Coke to like break back through that clutter to you. Because I, I think that's what you mean is like you missed the kind of old like 15 second exciting ad that like makes you laugh or chuckle or think or something like that. And you'll get some of that. Connected TV will help with that too. Dan, so I'm I, old. I, I miss 30s. He misses <laughs> I would. I would he predict those newspaper ads. <laughs> uh, um, I think it's going to get a little more extreme before it gets more content driven though because yeah. connected tv will at some point get those clickbaity but you know what i mean the bottom of those articles where you see those click, sort of clickbaity ads that just work people pay money for them because they work on connected tv you'll probably get something similar to that for a while and you'll get the black pants following you all the way to your tv screen <laughs> in your living room oh, man. Uh, but eventually it will i think it'll settle out and in the long run i think that what the human being wants to give their attention to is what will prevail. I guess this is an audio podcast, not a video podcast, but I'll do this for you guys. If you're talking old school, there's a clockwork orange analogy. Oh. I've always said that if you strap somebody to a chair and you hold their eyes open and you mm. say, you must watch this ad, of course the ad's going to work. Of course they're going to see it. Of course they're going to remember that you know, Geico saves you 15% in 15 minutes or less. I get it. I've seen it a million times. You strapped me to the chair. You made me see it. It's in my brain now. But people aren't strapped to those chairs anymore. The restraints on my couch right. aren't there anymore. The mute button's in my hand. The TV is already my second screen. My primary screen is my phone when I'm sitting on the couch, and the TV is the second screen. Or on my computer, Truth. I'm you know, 15 tabs open, and there's ads everywhere. Yeah. I'm not strapped to a chair forced to watch your ad. And even on, on ESPN pre-roll or something like that, where you think that'd be the most premium experience, I'm skipping it. I'm muting it. I'm going to another tab. So if you're not like holding my eyes open, forcing me to watch an ad, an advertiser needs to earn attention instead of forcing attention. And I, I'm optimistic that the future of humanity is such that we control our own time. We're not strapped to chairs, forced to watch ads. Yeah. And that the ads that will make it through our algorithm into our brains and into our comprehension are the ones that we invite in, where we say, yeah, that's interesting enough. I'll, I'll spend 15 more seconds watching that. Or that ad's interesting enough, I'll actually click on that. I do want to know about the Airbnb tree houses in Northern California. But if there's something that's like, what the heck is this? I don't want to spend 15 seconds on this. If you believe that you have to earn attention as a brand, it completely changes the creative process. If you're in a boardroom or a creative room or whatever you want to call it, and you think about like, what type of ad would somebody let me ask them to watch or like choose to watch once it starts? Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, the clockwork orange analogy is, I think, quite apt. It's, it's very interesting. And, and I promise you that on our social media channels, we will we will post a picture uh, of you uh, holding yeah, your eyes don't. open. That's pretty strange. So please, please don't. <laughs> it's one thing in a video in two seconds. It's another to have my weird eyes open on your Facebook. I'm joking, Dan. I'm joking. Uh, our listeners just needed a joke. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think that that's quite a good balance between I think you've referenced Airbnb a couple of times. Airbnb, for those listeners that may not know, recently kind of made headlines because they essentially made a 180 shift as it relates to the way that they 
plan their media buys and kind of do their advertising, which is essentially flip-flopping and focusing more on brand versus performance marketing. And, you know, performance marketing is a big, obviously, area that native advertising is used in, right, which is kind of more conversion-driven or consideration-driven versus kind of mass awareness, right? That's how we talk about it in our universe. And so Mm -hmm. what Airbnb said was during the pandemic, you know, where they stopped advertising, they didn't necessarily see a huge shift in their business. And so essentially they want to focus on building their brand versus getting you immediately right now to book this treehouse. You know what I mean? And that's like a whole different thing. And the types of creative and advertising that you need to make in order to build a brand is more content that we're determining that you would want to watch, right? It's it's more content that's designed to sort of capture your attention. Uh, otherwise, you know, yeah. allowing us to earn it versus $2 off, you know what I mean? Kind of thing. And, and it's, it's interesting that you kind of make that correlation in terms of the future being using creative in these more sort of targeted spaces that is kind of similar to what you would use to build your brand. I think that's something that folks can sort of take away from what you're saying here. You know, just to transition a little bit to talk a bit more about you, uh, you know, you mentioned Stanford there. First of all, big shout out to the Stanford girls team. They're NCAA champs, right? Amazing. Yeah. Fun fact. My brother also went to Stanford two years younger, and he's taller than me. You can't tell on this call, but I'm a small guy. I'm like, what, 5'8"? He's probably 6'1 or something. I did play basketball, but I was never very good. But he was great, and he was on the practice squad for the what? Stanford women's team for four years. And so oh, he, he wow. got to travel with the team. He got to sit on the bench. He got to like, you know, be part of the Stanford women's basketball team, which is an institution. So he got to see that firsthand, and, and he tells some amazing stories about the team d- dynamics on that team. And congrats to them this year, obviously. That's a big deal. And I I feel like we just got the scoop. I had no idea boys were on the practice team for the (laughs) squad. Um, You know, so it's. By the way, that is disruptive. Exactly. (laughs) Who knew, right? (laughs) So I'm curious because, you know, you talked a little bit about your experience at Stanford and yet you dropped out right? Uh, You got your bachelor's, but then uh, you dropped out before you finished your master's degree to focus on this little company that you've got that we've referenced a couple of times, Share Through. Tell us a little bit about that. Share Through, is that the company? (laughs) I think it's called (laughs) Share Through. (laughs) Um, But tell us a little bit about that. Tell us what it was like to kind of get it off the ground. Were your parents happy that you dropped out of school? You know, was everybody on board? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, no, parents definitely encouraged. I finished the undergrad and I was I was in this research lab, which is like off in the corner of Stanford. And it's this pretty magical place. A lot of the like, mm. a lot of the original thinking about digital persuasion happened out of this lab. And some of it, I think, has been used in you know, funny ways. There's actually a movie recently released, that Netflix movie called The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. that really d- digs into a lot of these topics around persuasion and behavior change and how they can be used in strange ways on the internet, but also like there's a ton of ways they can be used for good. You know, mm-hmm. A ton of ways they can be used for peace and health and you know, triggering people to take their medicine, you know, mental health. There's a, there's a lot of really good stuff. So we did a lot of research out of that lab. And one of the, like the big frameworks that came out of it, in addition to that motivation, ability and trigger framework, was just this concept that if you're trying to get someone to change their behavior, you need to fit in naturally to the movement they're already doing so that they can continue that movement into the behavior change you're hoping for. Mm. Right. Uh, the analogy that I use sometimes is like, if you're a movie theater trying to get people to like come watch a movie, 
uh, or not even a movie theater, like a movie studio, trying to get someone to watch the movie in the movie theater. You can either get with the box office people and have them like recommend your movie. And hey, I, I walked up to the box office. I'm looking for, for a movie for me and my wife. What should I watch today? You know, arm that box office attendant with the two you know sentence headline about, oh, you should go see Spider-Man Six. It's got some really amazing animation in it. Or, I don't know, something like that. Or you can hire someone as I'm walking down the street, you know, walking to dinner to jump out from a back alley, grab me by the arm and pull me into a movie theater right. and sit me down in a seat and say, you should watch a movie right now. Well, like which one's going to be more effective? Obviously, if I'm in the movement, you know, moving into a movie theater and, you know, Sony Pictures is trying to get me to watch Spider-Man, it's much more effective to trigger me in that natural movement versus trying to like grab me by the arm from a dark alley and pull me into a theater. That's, um, by the way, that's the clockwork orange approach. approach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got to say, uh, Rob and I are English majors, and I got to say, your analogy game is on point today, Dan. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the war stuff really applies. We're not going to come back to that, I don't think. But marketing as war was the old metaphor, and most of the language around marketing was really built around war, like beachheads and yeah. targets and cohorts and stuff. And Dan, I mean, was that, so, so what happened at Stanford? I mean, you were, you were an econ major. I mean, were you starting to, I don't know, kind of look at this, you know, I would almost call it uh, more, more uh, you know, what Robert Schiller calls uh, narrative economics. Hmm. Uh, I did econ undergrad and then I started uh, a master's in like what they call management science and engineering, which the, the track I took essentially was this behavior change design, but a human centric uh, or human computer interaction combined with engineering, combined with psychology. But the end of that story was that, one of the biggest insights that came out of that was that if you fit the trigger into the natural action that somebody's already doing, it's going to be just much more potent, much more effective. And so we said, let's try applying that to advertising. Let's see if we can take this concept, apply it to advertising. Most advertising, you know, as a naive, I guess, grad student at the time, to me, you felt like 20 years outdated. It was like taking a sticker and putting it on the internet and hoping that people would see it and do something with it. And when it's super, super targeted, like the black pants, the sticker works. But in most cases, like a picture of a happy family with the State Farm logo is just a waste of money versus telling a story or saying State Farm now has motorcycle insurance or like doing something that's more human and straightforward. And so we said, let's apply this principle to advertising and let's see if we can build an advertising company that is focused more on the concept of content, not traditional ads, and more on the concept of integrated ads, not foreign experiences such that when the marketer shares their content through the page, you know, delivers an ad to the page, that it's done in a way where the user's already skimming headlines and reading, and they'll skim this headline and read the ad too. Yeah, I mean, it works so well. You guys just got acquired, right? Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, interesting moment right now. So I started this company really as like a, a naive kid. I was probably 23 at the time. And 12 years later, after the whole startup roller coaster of ups and downs and growth and twists and turns and COVID and then the insane, amazing recovery from COVID over the past year and you know, market expansion and ad tech in, in favor, out of favor, in favor, out of favor, back into mega favor right now. You're catching me at a moment where just a month ago, we were uh, acquired by a Canadian company called District M. And we really merged the two businesses together, unified the teams, unified the org structure, unified the business model, unified the tech stacks, and you know, really just unified around like the share through exchange as the, the tech. And we brought all of our customers into this one core share through exchange. And we are now, I think the 
third largest independent ad exchange in the world. Fantastic. Uh, maybe like seventh largest if you count the public companies, uh, Magnite, Pubmatic, Google, and you know, there's some PE firm owned companies as well. But yeah, we're, we're, we're now one of the largest independent ad exchanges anchored in native, but not just native. We do display, we do video, starting to do connected TV type stuff, but all of it anchored in the principles of human-centric design. And so not just native as an ad format, but a, a philosophy to advertising that when you deliver an ad to the user, the first thing you should think about is what is the human going to see? What is the human going to comprehend? What is the human experience on their screen or wherever it is going to actually be for that human? And then let's walk it back to there in terms of how we add server to them, how we track it, and you know, all the way back ideally to the creative studio of like, what is the actual creative itself? Yeah. But you know, Dan, I think that is such a key point. And I think this notion of what you're doing and how you think about native, this people-centric, people-centered, mm-hmm. user experience advertising, I think is genius. I think what's not genius is that we've been sold as people in the agency business at tech. Yes. We've been sold the tech. We have not been sold. This is better for the for the user. And I think mm-hmm. that's a big miss. And uh, listen, I'm just, I'm thrilled you're out yeah. there making it happen. Yeah. It is a big miss. You're right. I mean, I've talked to a lot of creative agency execs over the years, uh, less so maybe in the past few years, but as we were building this movement, a ton of uh, agencies and creative folks asked us to come in and do seminars and teaching and sort of like the new landscape for how humans use the internet. And it matters so much. Uh, I'll I'm not going to like point a finger at any individuals, but this is something that happens to me often where I'll have a talk like this and I'll say, all right, let's pull up your banners. Yeah. Let's pull up banners for whoever, Coke yeah. Zero or mm. Procter & Gamble or come up with any brand you want and let's look at them and let's actually read the words that are in those banners. Let's just read the, the mm. actual words yeah. that are inside the, your banner that you put in there inside of Photoshop or Illustrator. Let's actually take them out of the banner and let's put them in the form of a headline just so that we can imagine a human actually reading them. And the minute someone sees a feed that's like headline, headline, and then their banners headline, and then another headline, another headline, when they say, wait a second, that's nonsense. Like the words I wrote are nonsense. There may be a tagline, Mm. or maybe it's like some weird call to action that's way too self-referential, or maybe it's just trying too hard. But in many cases, the words that are actually inside the banner are literal nonsense to a human who sees them. And it hasn't really mattered because people don't read banners. So no one's, no one's caught on to this fact because no one reads the banner. So right. the nonsense is like, you know, tree falls in the forest. But if you have ad formats where people are now leaning forward and actually turning their brains on and reading those ads and comprehending, you need to design those ads for comprehension so that the words that they read in their brain are not nonsense, but they're actually meaningful and they're actually comprehensible. And that ideally are both somehow interesting to the user and also delivers value to the brand. And sorry, robots, you do not have our jobs yet. Not yet, <laughs> you know, and, and somehow, I don't know, Dan, you, you're not an English major, but you, you're, you definitely can figure out how to craft a headline. You know, I like you because somehow we managed to bring Canada into another podcast episode and I'm Canadian. So <laughs> nice. you're now a Canadian since you're, you're hey, part of the team. I'll take a Canadian passport. I did tell them one, <laughs> one stipulation of this deal is that I wanted a Canadian passport. 
Yeah. Ooh, that's good. That's we'll good. See. That's going to be pretty valuable. My stock went up. I, I definitely tell you that. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, the advice that you just gave in terms of the way that we can shift how we look at advertising, particularly within this space, I think is fascinating, right? Whether we call it native, whether we call it performance, whether we call it digital, whatever the thing is, I think that piece of advice of look at it in the context of how a human being is going to see it, that is very valuable. That exercise of looking at a banner ad in the context of the different headlines that would potentially be on a site and, and yep. that to guide how you craft your, your words is, you know, it's quite fascinating. I, I think that that's cool. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad that that's resonating. Yeah, I think that is a real advice. Like, plan for the best, and imagine that someone actually reads your ad. I know that's a little silly when you say it that way, but imagine they actually read it. But I don't know. I'm of the mindset that brands need to be straightforward with people. They need to write the way that a human would write an email subject line or a headline or just talk normally to somebody. And that if the goal is to translate meaning, I think what's often lost is that let me put it this way, to get to behavior change, if the goal is behavior change, you have to trigger attention first to just get someone's attention to change the behavior. But between attention and behavior change, you need comprehension. And in most advertising, you get the attention, you hope for the behavior change, but you're skipping the comprehension step. And that's a huge step in the middle. Well, Dan, what what I think is fascinating about what you're saying is that you are one of the most modern, maybe cutting edge people we've ever had on the program. Yet what you just described is the purchase funnel. And right. I'm a big believer, you know, in the purchase funnel, as much as we keep trying to, you know, make charts that we put it on its side or we turn it upside down or we <laughs> turn it into a, a purchase of- snake or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> the, the- <laughs> Get my attention. Yep. Make me care. Inspire me to buy. Yep. It hasn't changed since uh, Adam Smith, you know, started thinking mm-hmm. about the invisible hand. And I think they, they may have touched a little something about that back at Stanford. Yeah, something fundamentally has changed though, and I'll, I'll harken back to what we talked about 10 minutes ago. That purchase funnel works if you can force attention all along the way. If you can't force me and strap me to a chair and force me to read your ads, watch your ads, view your ads with the sound on, watch the whole 30 second arc of it, you can't force that attention anymore. You do have to really change the way you think about the path from attention to behavior change. And if the path from attention to behavior change runs through comprehension, you need to design the ads for choice-based comprehension, not for forced comprehension, but choice-based comprehension. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but that's the world I want to live in. I don't want to be forced to 100%. comprehend yeah. things that I don't want to read or yeah. hear. Or 100%. I, want to be, I want to control my own time and my own brain. Listen, as, 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 as an agency, you know, we, we've always believed that we have to earn the attention and the respect of the viewer and the reader, no matter what we do. So, so yeah. we're right there with you. All right, Dan, we're at the point of the show where after all this wisdom, you have to give us one more piece of wisdom. We, 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 we have not extracted enough out of you. <laughs> but give us, give us a piece of advice. And I think, you know, given our conversation today, I would, I would say I think you should talk directly to CMOs. I think that you... You're living in a world that uh, they need to utilize with, with us at agencies, but give a CMO who's out there one piece of advice. Maybe I'll, I'll synthesize our marketing as a war concept. And I think that whole concept gets turned on its head once we break out of those shackles connecting us to the couch. As an advertiser, that whole concept of going to war and 
targeting users or just treating users as if they're forced to see your ads completely goes away. And my advice in this new world is to say, let's imagine that we get one and a half seconds of someone's attention as they're scrolling through a feed or as they start to watch a video or something. How do we earn the next second? How do we earn the next second? How do we earn the next second? How do we earn, how do we go from them reading two words in a headline to being willing to read the whole headline, to being willing to read the subheader under the headline, to be willing to even click on it to see what's underneath the headline, to read the rest of my article or post or my ad or whatever else is going to be, my website, and bringing that all the way down or all the way up, I guess you want to call it, to the creative strategy itself, play the creative in the context that it will be watched in. Play the creative in the context it will be seen in. And if that creative makes no sense, is incomprehensible, is illogical, is offensive, is just nonsense, other than the experience of someone strapped to the chair, forced to watch that ad, rethink the creative. That's a probably 10-year next chapter of this mission that I'm going to be on. It's not going to happen overnight because this is a slow-moving industry. But I think it's critical. It's critical for so many points. Critical for marketers who want to long-term build brands that do earn attention. It's a huge opportunity for marketers who are breaking through this. And you see a lot of the small marketers doing punching above their weight class, creating big outsized brands because they speak to humans as humans. Uh, So it's critical, I think, from the brand side. But back to the stuff we talked about, it's critical for the future of free and open journalism to have ad formats that don't get blocked, skipped, and muted. Because if they're always skipped and always blocked and always muted, they won't monetize well. And if they don't monetize well, they won't fund free and open content. They won't fund content creators. And I'll tie it, I guess, all the way back up with a bow that if you don't have free and open accessible content for humanity, that feels like a big problem. Of course. So the best advice for CMOs is don't go to war with your audience, basically. That make sure that uh, you realize that advertising needs to save the world. There you go. That's the opposite. War and peace, right? That's a good note to end on. I do think we have a big responsibility and I am optimistic about our future. It's been proven by the the big platforms. That's the maybe final point here is that the advertising industry has quietly flipped over to this ad format. There's a lot of agencies, creative agencies who haven't gotten here yet. And there's a lot of open internet websites who haven't gotten here yet. But if you look at advertising on the internet, it's Google search is native. It's Facebook and Instagram ads, which are native. It's Pinterest, Twitter, LinkedIn. Snapchat, every new modern platform that will pop up, Clubhouse will never do banner ads. Clubhouse will do some sort of integrated promoted shows or whatever. It's just, it's already happened. Advertising on the internet already is native, but sadly only on the closed platforms. And that's why the attention's there. And that's why the monetization's there. That's why there's now trillion dollar companies being built around this. And we as an industry, the rest of the ad industry, particularly the creative side, need to bring that same level of sort of care and respect for the user to everything that we do. Very good. Well, listen, Dan, that was uh, super illuminating. We really appreciate it. Uh, you brought a big Stanford brain uh, into the podcast. So we appreciate it. And everybody follow Disruptor Series on LinkedIn, Instagram, and you'll get to get all this great content. Yeah. And I was just reminded as you were giving some advice, uh, you, for whatever reason, you made me think of... Uh, a very old ad from Smith Barney, which uh, Smith Barney used to say, they make money the old fashioned way, they earn it. And I think earning attention uh, is what we've got to do. So uh, thank you so much. Right on. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks. All right. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. 
Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.